Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare insurance plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare insurance plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome, guys, to another introduction episode. This one on the sources and the structure of the Korean War series that we're going to follow going forward. I hope you guys are still with us after last time. I know as far as introductions go, this whole process is, seems a bit unwieldy, but I promise you it's all worth it. It's to make sure that we're all on the same page when we start. And really, I hope to kind of instill in you guys a sense of, well, excitement, really. There's some real cool stuff on the way, not just because of the sources we're using. How about that intro music, eh? You know, I just, I really had to go with MASH as the kind of introduction theme for this series. 
to be honest, I'm not exactly sure how it's going to be taken with the people up in copyright land, but I'm hoping that nothing will really happen. I'm basically banking on the fact that no one will really listen to this and then no one will really complain, but then at the same time, if this does blow up because people like the Korean War, we may be in a bit of trouble. But if the worst comes to the worst, I'll just change it to the original When Diplomacy Fails Music. But I thought at this stage in the game, it's nice to distinguish our series with things that well, make them memorable, and I think there's few things more memorable than Suicide is Painless, which is the actual name of the MASH theme. Anyway, we're going to get ahead of ourselves. I just wanted to say a huge thanks again for joining us, and to not forget that the next week is going to be rather chock-a-block full of content. So if you're looking forward to delving into the Cold War, then watch out for the Cold War Crash Course, which is going to be hitting you guys each day of the first week. So January 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th. There'll be each episode will drop on each of those days, and then by the following Monday we'll be well set up to blast you with more Korean War content. If that sounds good, if that sounds terrifying, then that's great. This is when diplomacy fails. My name is Zach Twomley, and I'm so very happy to have you here. Now let's start off with the second introductory episode. Writing in his 2014 book on the Korean War and the United Nations, the historian Robert Barnes declared on the very first page, To describe the Korean War as forgotten or unknown is now an unwarranted cliché. The significance of this short but intense conflagration in shaping the post-war world, not to mention the risks of a global conflict that it entailed, especially in the winter of 1950-51, have long been appreciated by political, international, military, social and economic historians alike. While the Cold War clearly existed prior to 1950, the Korean War set in motion a chain of events that shaped international relations until 1989 and beyond. Barnes's point was that the conventional approach to the Korean War is an approach that has been done to death by historians in the past. Indeed, books that trace the general course of events during the Korean War without focusing too heavily on specific persons, events, or angles are a dime a dozen. Yet, while Barnes argues that everyone now understands and appreciates the importance of the war for what it did to the Cold War and how it influenced the development of world relations, I would argue that even if people know the Korean War and pride themselves on being among the few who know something detailed about how the conflict progressed, they don't really know the Korean War at all. Sure, they may know why it happened. The North, confident in its supremacy, invaded the South, and the Americans scrambled to defend this South Korean baby republic on the fringes of the Cold War world. What followed from that was American intervention, UN intervention, and Chinese intervention, as the war in Korea grew into a monster apparently out of everyone's control. As I established in the previous introductory episode, I do not believe that the Korean War happened by accident. I don't believe that either the Soviet Union or the United States was taken by surprise when the Northern Invasion began, 
and I believe that both powers, for their own reasons, wanted to see the conflict break out. If you're still with me after I dropped those bombs of controversy on you guys, then great. In this episode, we will answer a few important questions. What will the structure of this series look like? How will the different episodes be released? How will each individual episode be structured? Where can we find the sources for the episodes? What music will we be using? And a few more important points. Anyone who has ever written a book, a dissertation, or any other long-form study will appreciate the following piece of advice. Don't write the conclusion or introduction until the body of your work is finished. Now that I've finished the main body of the Korean War series, I find now that I'm in a much better position to present it to you guys. I understand its contents now, I know where its conclusions ended up, and I know the limits of the scope of this project. Because of this planning on such a ridiculous scale, I am now able to state accurately how many episodes I have and what their general structure will look like. I will also be providing in a series of blog posts five individual articles that summarise the different phases of our coverage. Before we even begin the series on the Korean War, I have prepared for you guys a mini-series called the Cold War Crash Course, which I've mentioned a few times. This will bring us up to speed and help set the scene for the Korean War. After that, we have 48 episodes of the Korean War to get through, followed by an epilogue and a conclusion, of course, as we wave goodbye to this incredible era for a time. A friendly reminder, as you may or may not be aware, if you didn't listen to our latest State of the Podcast address, the Extra Feed on Patreon will be hosting a brand new original series called 1956, which is in many ways the sequel to the Korean War, and which will provide even more insight into this era for those that are interested. The Extra Exclusive will run throughout this year, in other words 2018, so if it's 2019 now, you can go check out our Patreon page and feast on all of 1956 all in one go. Since I haven't finished 1956 yet, I can't say for sure how many episodes it will contain, and since I don't want to jinx it, I'm going to be a bit vague about how long it's going to run for, but I currently estimate that it'll last most of 2018, if not all. Since we're on the subject of the extra feed and Patreon, it is worth mentioning how those at the $2 level of support will benefit from our coverage of the Korean War. We mentioned in the past that $2 supporters have access to the fully sourced, footnoted scripts, And of course, they get their episodes a week earlier than regular listeners, as is their right. In the past, regular listeners, in other words, most of you guys listening right now, would have about a minute or two of Patreon advertisements, or perhaps some other suitable ramblings, before the episode began. And then we'd go into the usual intro music and the episode would start. This time around, though, we're going to do things a bit differently. The episodes in the Korean War will be structured in the following way. There will be no ads from my side at the beginning of the episode, although I should mention that our host, Acast, can sometimes put ads on at the beginning of episodes anyway. And actually, since we're on the subject of Acast and their ads, please do let me know if at any stage during these episodes, or any of my back catalogue episodes, the episode is suddenly interrupted by a mid-roll ad. I have said in the past that I do not want mid-roll ads, that has not changed, What has changed is the way that the kind of 
uploading the episode interface on Acast works. And it seems kind of like they're pushing mid-roll ads onto you. So now it's telling me that I have mid-roll ads, even though I don't want them. And it's a very long, boring story. But the long and short of it is, if you notice any mid-roll ads, tell me. And I'll try my very best to get rid of them. And if I can't get rid of them, we'll just have to engage in some more drastic measures. Anyway, leaving all of Acast aside. Instead, everyone's episodes will start the same way. But once we get past the whole introductory part of the episode and we give you the background noise, which you might or might not be happy to know is returned to the vintage sound. In other words, this sound. Rather than this sound... Once that background sound rings out, that is the signal that the episode is about to begin. And that's when regular listeners will be hearing an ad. If you support us from $2 a month on Patreon, you will not be getting an ad. That's just the way it works. I'm trying to make being a patron of this podcast as beneficial as possible without the whole thing being too invasive. We have some new things to advertise to you guys. Don't worry, there's no Casper mattresses or Blue Apron or any of that jazz. It's interesting stuff, and I think you guys will be kind of able to get some kind of a kick out of it. You'll find it interesting. And anyway, you shouldn't really worry too much because it's only a very short ad. And if you're really bothered that much by a very short ad, then I guess you don't love me that much at all. And that's quite upsetting. Anyway, we're getting off topic. The major difference between episodes of the Korean War and previous episodes in, like, the Long War or the Franco-Dutch War, for example, is the music. You see, I'm a huge fan of Gregorian chant. You may or may not have noticed. And I have always introduced us into the latest episode with some leading music to get us all in the mood. But it would be a bit weird to put Gregorian chant in this kind of series, because our conflicts take place in the 1950s and it would just would feel a bit out of place, to be honest. So I thought to myself, why not take advantage of the rich musical habits of the 1950s, as well as the preceding decades of the century, to bring you something a bit more special. Every week, we will have what's called a Song of the Week, where we bring you guys a royalty-free song, hopefully no one sues me, from the bygone era. I have to say a huge thanks to the following websites for their free, available, and usable music. The Free Information Society, Free Music Archive, and Archive.org have all been invaluable resources for setting the musical tone of this series, but I'd also like to thank Colt Cabana's Art of Wrestling podcast, for giving me the idea of the Song of the Week. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, and since we've already borrowed thanks from Colt Cabana, to be used by history friends everywhere of course, I figured it was only right to borrow another device of his, so thanks Colt. In the astoundingly unlikely event that any of you guys are wrestling fans or just fans of good stories about people trying to make it in their chosen profession, do check out the Art of Wrestling podcast. It's my favourite podcast full stop, After all these years, it started in 2010, and I have tried to mould my casual conversational style for those collaboration episodes I do around Colt Cabana's style, so you can thank Colt for that as well. Right, so to move on a little bit, I really hope that after tracking down 48 individual songs for this era, that you guys enjoy our new approach. So here's the way it's going to work then, to kind of mould all the things I just told you in together. Once the background sound hits, the idea is I'll present the song of the week as being brought to you by something, be it the Patreon page, a BeFit reminder, Agora's podcast of the week, or a given sponsor. For those supporters at the $2 level and above, though, you'll only hear me say what the song of the week is, and then we'll jump into it 
and the episode without the ad in between. This is, I feel, the best way to ensure that supporters of this podcast truly feel like they're getting something. For the price of an espresso, you too can support When Diplomacy Fails and enjoy never having to hear me talk about Patreon again. If that doesn't make you come running, I don't know what will. In all seriousness though guys, I really do appreciate the support you have given and continue to give me over the years, especially as this podcast is now my part-time job, solely because of your support. It is thanks to you that I've been able to make time for such an involved project as this, and it is my hope that by approaching a topic like the Korean War, rather than some unknown conflict in the 1600s, we can bring when diplomacy fails to even more people than ever before. You of course can help out with this by telling as many history friends as you are aware of, or by talking about what we're doing here on social media, Reddit, ugh, or any other place where history lovers or casual enthusiasts dwell. You should also join the recently established When Diplomacy Fails Facebook group. If you're not one for Facebook pages or all that malarkey, do check out the Facebook group. I mentioned I might be establishing it in the When Diplomacy Fails' state of the podcast address a week ago, and I decided to just take the plunge and go for it, because what could be better than surrounding yourself with a community of like-minded history friends? Anyway, thank you for tolerating me in my tireless self-promotion ways, and I genuinely hope you enjoy what we have planned for you for the rest of 2018. If the music from this era is something we can hopefully enjoy, then another significant aspect of this era should also bring us even closer to the history than ever before. In the early 1950s, a bulk of what was said and debated in political circles was actually recorded and placed in the public domain many years after the event. Thanks to depositories like these, I am very excited to announce that the Korean War will be the first series of When Diplomacy Fails Us to make active, consistent use of audio from this era. You'll be able to hear announcements, debates and perspectives from figures who were actually there and who actually said those things. As far as historical source material goes, this is the dream for podcasters like myself. But what does it sound like, Zach, and how will you really make use of it? Well, it means, for example, that I can do something like this. The attack upon Korea was an outright breach of the peace and a violation of the Charter of the United Nations. This is a direct challenge to the efforts of free nations to build the kind of world in which men can live in freedom and peace. Our ability to harness these sources doesn't stop there, and in some episodes in particular, the blend of our modern narrative with the old, authentic voice lends, I hope you'll agree, a new edge to this series, which otherwise just wouldn't have been possible. It is a resource that drops you in the era like nothing else, and it only served to further recommend the Korean War to me as I looked into it, and realised that this treasure trove of material was here, but had yet to be properly made use of in podcast format. Now, I'm not going to portray myself as some kind of podcasting pioneer, but I am immensely excited and fortunate to have found and now have access to such sources, and to be in this position that no other podcaster or, to my mind, historian has been in, brings me not a small amount of nerdy historical joy. I look forward to bringing you some audio gems from our past then, and to infusing each one of our 48 episodes with at least some kind of quality audio nugget. The fact that each episode of this series will contain its own song and a degree of authentic audio 
underlines the amount of preparation and work which went into it, but these aspects of the project were only surface details compared to the actual research I engaged in. For this research to be as watertight and scholarly as possible, I gathered a great deal of written, published sources, and I'm going to share details about some of them now. So don't worry, you won't be getting a readout of my entire bibliography here. I'm just going to go through a few that were the most helpful. Covering the sources that we use is all well and good, of course, but before we examine those sources, I would like to give you a bit of a rundown of what the different episodes will look like and what the structure of the series overall looks like. So let's do that first. You see, I first approached the idea of doing the Korean War, and I was like, great, this seems interesting, but then I was confronted by that challenge, which every historian or author in any discipline faces. Where do I begin? With a conflict so populated by published works, where do I begin to tackle the different elements involved? I meant this in a literal sense as well. What year should our coverage of the Korean War actually start at? We have to set the background, but... Define background. Should we start in 1945 when the peninsula was artificially divided for the first time in its history? Or should we start in 1910 when Korea became officially Japanese land? Should we start with the first Korean War waged in the 1890s? Or should we ignore all such background and plonk our narrative, as some studies do, on the eve of the Korean War and work back? After some exploration of my options... I decided that the best course of action would be to follow that old maxim from school, answer the question which you find most interesting first, and the rest will follow more easily. What this looked like was me getting to grips with the period 1945-50, which I covered in the five-part series, Cold War Crash Course. In that series I wanted to set the scene, both for the listeners and also for myself, so that I could appreciate what kind of world the Korean War existed within. This was an invaluable experience for me, even though it was only five episodes long, and it really helped to place my mind in the right time frame to proceed going forward. In the first few episodes of the Korean War proper, you'll see that I elaborate on this kind of scene-setting theme further. I introduce post-war America, the concepts of the United Nations, Douglas MacArthur's command, the Soviet Union's hold on Eastern Europe, and Mao Zedong's regime. All of these lead us into the examination of the more groundbreaking aspects of this series, Sino-Soviet Diplomacy, which we cover in four detailed episodes as we unwrap the decisions of these powers as they bumbled towards their alliance in February 1950. The journey towards that alliance was far from certain or easy, and this is reflected in my alternative take on Sino-American relations, which occurred parallel to them, as Washington tried first to intercept the alliance and then was forced to respond to it with a new foreign policy approach under NSC 68 that we were introduced to last time. Then for episodes 11 to 17, we switch between the Sino-Soviet and American actions, as both prepare in their own way for the outbreak of the Korean War in summer 1950. It isn't until episodes 18, 19 and 20 that we actually delve into some background details of the Korean regimes, North and South, to set our series in its appropriate context. Then in episode 21, we present my thesis for the Korean War in more detail, as I deal with the opposing arguments of the scholars of the Korean War, and explain why I believe my thesis is the most convincing. The 20s are episodes of great activity. We open episode 22 with the 
crossing of the Rubicon as the North Korean People's Army moves against Seoul and opens the Korean War. As initial phases of the war get underway, a cynical undertone of national self-interest seems to underwrite the behaviour of both Washington and Moscow, who both attempt to manipulate the war to serve their interests. In episode 24, we examine the United Nations in more detail and assess its role in the formation of the Avengers sent to take Kim Il-sung down. In episodes 28 to 30, we investigate how Britain played its own role in the conflict, what it gained and what it lost by supporting the United States in Asia, where at times London and Washington held very different views about how to proceed. The 30s focus a great deal on what the Chinese did as the war broke out, and of course several Chinese puns will accompany the titles of the episodes, since you should expect nothing less. We examine Mao Zedong's behaviour in the war, how he viewed the conflagration on his doorstep, and how he tried unsuccessfully to refrain from taking part, due to his own preoccupation with the situation in Taiwan, where his civil war enemy Chiang Kai-shek still resided. As the 30s episodes progress, we'll see different threads of our story coalesce, while we'll also see the drama reach a fever pitch. The Chinese involve themselves as volunteers in this limited war, and the Truman administration does battle with its commanding general as the Allies and the Soviets look on. All the while, on the battlefield, the Korean people and the soldiers on both sides attempt to gain an advantage, only to eventually settle into stalemate. This stalemate comes to characterise the latter two-thirds of the war, a fact we'll learn to accept in the episodes of the 40s. With General MacArthur replaced and new offensives planned, it seemed that the Allies had it in the bag, but some dishonest, desperate diplomacy by the Communists enables them to reinforce their lines and foil the Allied ambitions. What follows were debates at high levels, as the United Nations General Assembly plays a new role in fostering debate about the conflict, the United States struggles with the concept of atomic bombs and coercive diplomacy, and Truman prepares the White House for a new president. All of these threads come together as Stalin dies, the United States positions itself as a military leader in world affairs, and a peace is finally achieved with several reservations in late July 1953. Thanks to my diplomatic focus, I was able to give a great deal of time and attention to the pertinent concerns and challenges facing the great powers. The cooperation between the Commonwealth and the United Kingdom in the Korean War was very interesting to me, as were the many notes from those that took part in the Korean War that they expected Britain's prominent position to last for some time into the future. Britain's great power status, of course, crashed into the ground in 1956, with the advent of the Suez Crisis, and this is one of the major events our exclusive series of that name will examine. Our narrative on the Korean War is quite leader-focused. We won't be looking at any social questions or military issues that take us away from the diplomatic analysis. That being said, I've taken it upon myself to at least understand these elements of the story, so if you have any questions, do contact me, well, within reason, and if you want to know what I found useful, check out the bibliography. Speaking of bibliography, we can now actually talk a little bit about it. For a brief rundown, I can recommend Max Hastings' Korean War. Now I say brief, but it really isn't that brief at all. And even though I do disagree with its conclusion on why the war broke out, and the rationale of the great powers involved, and the presentation of the world situation that Max Hastings gives, this book remains the best single narrative of the conflict, 
and it holds something for everyone thanks to its wide scope and its readable design. So do check it out, even if you bear in mind I don't really agree with everything he says. For those looking to follow along with my conclusions, do check out Richard C. Thornton's book, Odd Man Out, which you can find on Amazon and some select bookstores. Thornton's understanding of the era and his comprehensive, articulate use of the source material recommend his book to all with an interest in the diplomatic history of the conflict. For narratives on the military history, I found Andrew Salmon's Scorched Earth Black Snow immensely useful, and for a personal account, albeit one which I unfortunately didn't have much time to use in the end, I recommend Brigadier Brian Parrott's Chinese Hordes and Human Waves. While I was researching the conflicts between Truman and General MacArthur, I found that H.W. Brand's book, The General vs. the President, was very useful and full of primary source references and a hearty bibliography to boot. To set me into the scene of post-war Eastern and Western Europe, I found that the late, great Tony Jutt's post-war and Anne Applebaum's Iron Curtain were far and away the most useful, with the former taking time to examine societal issues and the latter being more politically focused. Both are very readable, and I know that at least Tony Jutt's book can be found on Audible, as it was the first audiobook I ever got, and I've listened to it ad nauseum since. Max Hastings' account is also on Audible, and I've listened to it several times to stay in the mood, in the gym, when I was killing it, both in terms of history and exercise. I have of course surrounded myself with a wealth of academic articles as well, and these articles really have helped me get a a nuanced perspective and dive into loads of really detailed pieces of research, and of course try and avoid rabbit holes as best as I can. Thanks to my legacy subscription to the UCD library services that includes JSTOR, I'm able to access these articles, so unless you have a similar subscription or maybe you're a college student yourself, you're probably not going to have access to JSTOR and you probably won't be able to track down these articles, but for further reading in the future, the bibliography is there. A final housekeeping note, to do with pronunciation, terms and phrasing that we'll use during this series. Alarm bells should already be ringing for you guys, because not only does the Korean War involve me talking about Eastern European and Russian names, but as the name suggests, it also involves me talking about Asian names. I can hear a collective shudder go out across the WDF universe right now, but I thought it was only right to state here how I plan to pronounce each of the names of the major actors and why. Chairman Mao is a very important figure, so it's important of course that we say his name correctly. I always used to go with the heavily anglicised version of the surname, Zidong, since that's the way it's spelt and you know me by now. However, those of you that have been around the block a bit have likely heard Mao Zedong also be pronounced, and I have it on good authority, because I talked to Chris Stewart from the History of China podcast, that that, in fact, is not entirely correct, and Mao Zedong is perfectly acceptable. Since I tend to read things as they're written down, And since uh, there's no point making this whole thing harder for myself, I decided to just go with Mao Zedong since that's perfectly acceptable. So why wouldn't I? So that's what I'm going to do. But if you hear me say Mao Zedong and you think, hey, that's not right though, I can tell you I have it on good authority that it is. Moving away from China, the South Korean leader, Syngman Rhee, was also a cause for some confusion because depending on whom you ask, the name is pronounced literally or more like Syngman Rhee. Since it seems that Syngman Rhee is perfectly acceptable, and you'll be happy to know that I asked a listener who is living in Korea, 
what the best way to pronounce it is. And he told me Syngman Rhee is fine and that Syngman Rhee is completely not fine. I've decided to go with Syngman Rhee and at least you know I actually researched things this time and didn't just make it up on the spot. Those two examples are probably the most iffy, but for clarification's sake, I should note that throughout this series, I'll be referring to the island of Taiwan, not as the way in which most figures during the early 1950s referred to it as Formosa. This is a very small change, and I don't even really need to let you guys know about it, because you probably won't really notice, but by calling the island Taiwan, I feel the extracts and anecdotes dealing with this contentious island have more of an impact since they use our modern phrasing. Most of you probably won't even notice it, and you've probably never even heard of Formosa being used to describe Taiwan, but for a myriad of reasons, mostly due to the post-colonial era in which the relevant actors lived in the 1950s, this was the name that was used. I wouldn't imagine that this name change should offend anyone, but if it does, as my dear old dad says, you can make like a businessman and deal Thanks, Dad. It should go without saying that as our story progresses, I'll be learning myself, so make sure to send me polite corrections if I rustle any of your jimmies by pronouncing something or getting something abhorrently wrong. For everything else, I've begun to check YouTube for the best means of pronunciation, so at least I'm trying, God bless me. The Korean War is a series which has grown in scope as I came to terms with just how much I'd underestimated, well, pretty much every aspect of it. I'd originally planned for 30 episodes, and I came out with 48. I decided to roll with that larger number even while it means that when diplomacy fails, it's going to be really churning out the episodes for the first few weeks of this year. To begin with, we have to get the five-part series Cold War Crash Course out of the way, so that will be unrolled every weekday from the 8th of January until it's finished. Then, from the 15th of January to the 12th of February, we'll be releasing two episodes a week, to ensure that we finish this series in time. In time for what, you may be wondering? Well, if you didn't listen to that state of the podcast address, you naughty thing you, you may have missed the fact that I plan on tackling the 1919 Treaty of Versailles in the same manner that I tackled the July Crisis. Considering my interests, I feel it would be wrong to let such a great centenary opportunity pass us by, but for several important reasons, we're going to have to start this series from Sunday the 11th of November 2018. 100 years to the day, and I plan to make it to the minute and hour as well, that the armistice was signed on the Western Front. This of course means that we had to finish the Korean War by that time, which, as my interest in it grew, became more and more difficult a task to accomplish, but hopefully my solution here will please you all. It should go without saying that I am, of course, massively excited to delve into the post-World War I world to give you a never-before-heard perspective on that treaty. Does it deserve the infamous reputation it holds today? How imbalanced was it? Who had the most sway over its contents? You can expect more information on that Versailles series as we go on, but I always was of the persuasion that it's wrong to force a story to fit where sometimes it just will not fit. So, with this in mind, I felt that you'd rather have a stuffed first few weeks of the Korean War's content rather than an unfinished story. As ever, make sure to keep your eye on the Facebook page and Facebook group so that you're always abreast of the latest scheduled news. But generally in these early stages, one episode will release on Monday and the other on Wednesday, while, as we're aware, patrons will get to start 1956 from February after I spent a bit more time on it. The rough rundown of our schedule should demonstrate just how much we have in store for you guys, and how busy I've been over the last few months. 
a friendly reminder also that Poland is not yet lost, should be launching on the 18th of May, our 6th anniversary, so make sure you look out for that as well. Between Poland is not yet lost, the Versailles anniversary project, 1956, and of course, the Korean War series, I think 2018 will be our best year yet, and I really encourage you guys to spread the word of what we're doing here, so that more history friends can join in with the debate. Alright guys, that about does it for this introductory episode. I hope you can all enjoy the next solid week of When Diplomacy Fails' programming and that the Cold War Crash Course sets you up comfortably for what's about to come. Until next time, I have been Zach. This has been the second introductory episode for the Korean War and that is the theme song of MASH playing in the background. Isn't it just lovely? Anyway, thanks for listening and I'll be seeing you all soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 